Okay, let's begin. Our goal in this series of classes has been to understand the basic message of what Tanakh or the Bible is all about. We want to understand, we want to know the basic philosophy of biblical teachings. We want to understand the overarching principles that percolate throughout the entire Tanakh. We want to know that which drives the biblical narrative. My obvious point is that the narrative in of itself is not of the most critical significance, but rather the narrative itself contains certain ideas, ideals, and values with which we are going to ultimately impact upon the world. Or in a word, what we want to know about is what is the biblical straw that mixes the biblical drink. We've discussed a number of key words that I would say to you that every single literate Jew has to know, has to understand. That gives a point and purpose to your study, to your Jewish lives, that provides a framework out of which you can actually operate. What are those key words that we should all be familiar with? I'm not going to explain them, but you should be familiar with them. First, we discuss the issue of tikkun olam, which literally means to mend the world. Second of all, we discuss the notion of yemot Mashiach or the messianic era. Tikkun olam is that which we do to ultimately bring us to the messianic era. We then discuss the notion of Selim Elohim, which literally means divine image. It's the most important and the most impactful teaching that we have throughout the entire Tanakh. It's the most important idea that we've given actually to the world itself. There is no civilized people that do not believe, whether explicitly or implicitly, in the notion of Selim Elohim. People are unaware of the extraordinary power of this idea. What are the implications of Selim Elohim? The implication of Selim Elohim is that every single human being is of infinite preciousness, infinite value. We do not place a price on any human being. And to understand that idea more closely, anybody that has a child and asks if we would give up our children for let's say a million dollars down, what would you say? Two. Five, ten, a hundred. For a hundred million, I could negotiate over here. Hundred million, right? We see our children as infinitely precious to us. There's nothing that can replace a value on this infinite value we put on our children. So too, Torah teaches us that every human being is created in the king, and therefore, every human being is of infinite preciousness. We have to ultimately see the world that way. Selim Elohim. You see a grocer. You see a garbage man. You see a person who gives you your milk, your milkman. Now you may think that that person only provides you with those wonderful essential services. Torah is declaring that even though those services are necessary, you have to look beyond this provided services and say, you are a Selim Elohim. God created you with infinite value. You may have had a dunk of basketball as Michael Jordan or not. Still in the world, you are of infinite value. You may be as beautiful... That's a pretty good entrance. You may be as beautiful as Eve Lamison and his beautiful wife over here. You may be that beautiful. But from our point of view, you're simply only worth to us what your cinema of infinite value. It's not your beauty, your wealth, your likability, or anything that you do don't do. 
God has granted you infinite value. That's the Elamilokim. It also implies that in the same way that God is to be viewed as utterly unique, so to every human being is utterly unique. No two human beings are alike. This is the Mishnah in Tzadikim, the sixth parak, if I remember correctly, which tells us that every human being was created unique, uniquely. Everybody is singular, and therefore also irreplaceable. Every irreplaceable. No one person can replace another. So too, if a person loses a child, God forbid, then if you have 25 more children, you will always remember that lost child. Every child to you is unique and irreplaceable and of infinite value to you. Those are the implications in the term Selim Elohim. Now because this term is Selim Elohim, we also spoke about which means just and righteous, and that's how I treat a human being who is Selim Elohim. I do not manipulate them, I do not take advantage of them, I do not abuse them, I deal with them with justice and righteousness. Now, on the other hand, we also have made the point that something called Sdom Amora Aram. What is that really saying to us? Where God determines that this group of people deserve utter and absolute destruction. Abraham argues, Sdom and Gemara, see the movie. It's a good movie, I hear. It's a violation of Selim Elohim. If a society in total violates to that degree the Selim Elohim nature, that becomes their philosophy of life. That they will violate Selim Elohim and they deserve to be destroyed because they have abandoned the concept of Elohim. They are anti-God. Now, what does that really mean? Contemporarily, you call it Nazism, who believes the philosophy of destruction. Or you might call it Saddam Hussein, who is, will randomly kill any human being, no regard for human life. Our critical variable is Samuel King. That's what builds as we build everything upon. He has no regard for human life, therefore he's part of what we would call Amalek. Biblical Amalek. They who loyal King, they will see no intrinsic value to a human being. They're Amalek. But loyal King is the way the Torah describes this people called Amalek. And once you are Amalek, then you deserve destruction. So Torah is saying that even though one may be born with an intrinsic value called Selim Elohim, you can, <coughs> in fact, deny that value, you can violate that value, you can lose your Selim Elohim. Good. <coughs> now, those are some representative ideas, ideals, and values. What's saying over here is that Tanakh, the books of the Bible, are a, is a repository of, a, of all of our ideas, ideals, and values. Torah is, Torah is in the broad sense of the term, is an educational system that ultimately will attempt to mend the world, tikkun olam, to teach the world all of, all of our ideas, ideals, and values. So far, very clear. Torah is an educational system by, which revolves around the notion of Selim Elohim, and has its goal tikkun olam, its impact upon, sorry, the world, and it's all over here. We then, we then spoke of the issue, are we succeeding? The answer is yes and no. Many of our ideas have been incorporated into the world's vocabulary, such as the notion of civil rights. One has the right to have civil rights, human dignity, freedom, bankruptcy laws. We spoke about that. Or the notion of progress, all a part of 
our vocabulary does now become part and parcel of the world's vocabulary. And of course, one can elaborate on all these ideas, ideals, and values to a greater degree. How do we impact? We spoke about the threefold model, horizontal, vertical, and rack, randomized of kindness, which we're not going to pursue right now. Now, when we look at our books of the Bible, if you look at the opening page of your brown Tanakh, here you have, number one, three distinct sections. First of all, you have what's known as Torah, five books. We have not spoken about the five books of Moses, but that's the most intense repository of ideas, ideals, and values. Five books that God had spoken to Moses and communicated to him those ideas, ideals, and values. Then we have you turn the page, oh, then you have right next door, that page and the next page, 19 books of the prophets, 19 books of the prophets, which again is God's word to the Jewish people, which means how to take these ideas, ideals, and values and stir the historical drink. The books of the Ketu of the Nevi'im are historical books. Yoshua, Shoftim, Shemuel, Melachim, etc. Those are historical books. And here we have our attempt, our attempt to incorporate those ideas, ideals, and values into the historical arena. For example, let's say you want to have to conquer a land. You have to conquer a land. It's called Enes Canaan. Now, why do we have to conquer a land? Because a nation needs a land in order to serve as its center. Or let me put this issue differently. Let's say you were God. Some of you have illusions of being God. Now let's say that you really were God and you had this great system, you had this great educational philosophy that you want to impact the world with. How would you do it? Make the Jews do it. That's what God does. But that's the easy answer. That's what happens. But what would you do? You would want, number one is you, you would want a, you want a people. So, call them whatever you want to call them. Do you want a people. Well, why not all the people? Why specifically? Agreed. Good. So the, the Bible portrays as God having really tried to do exactly that with all the people, and it failed. Noah shows that it failed. Why did it fail? Now, obviously, this is part of the process. It failed because, yes, people have inclinations. There's temptations. People fall to their temptations. Right? In the second class, we're going to come to in a few minutes, we'll talk about the second book over here, Bishlia, about what connotations there are out in this world. We'll talk about that as we go along. So now people, the attempt was to make this whole world into a Selim kind of a world. It failed. So then God chooses Abraham. Remember the statement, how odd of God to choose the Jews, not so odd, the Jews chose God. Right? How odd of God to choose the Jews, it's not so odd, the Jews chose God. Maurice Sanders, 1931. And it works. Maurice Sanders. But okay. So now we have a people that chose God, and they incorporate this philosophy into their life. Now that, in order to work, you need two items. And one, in order to work, you need a, let's call it a, a genealogical approach, which means we transfer our values to our families, genealogically, we become a racial-based system, 
that anybody that's Jewish has these ideas and these values, good. We also need an ideological approach, which means that if I convince you that this is the right way to live life, you're going to convert, in quotes, into this philosophy of life. Conversion is a change in philosophy. In other words, you may have been born, let's say, a... Um, give me the honest uh, religion that you know. Hindus. Hindus pretty odd, okay. But anything else? Uh, sorry? Buddhists? No, no, that's... There are billion of them. You can't call that odd, but there's more than who you are. Okay. Let's say a Shintoist. Harry Krishna. Oh, those are the weirdest. Whoever you like. So you're born then, and you live that way. And all of a sudden you realize there's another philosophy of life. It's called Judaism. Judaism is a philosophy of life that incorporates behavioral norms, behavioral norms as those ideological underpinnings. And you say you want to become that, follow that philosophy of life, then you call it's called conversion. Good. So we believe in that. So you could be ideologically Jewish, or you could be genealogically Jewish. If your mother is Jewish, then you are genealogically Jewish. If you don't, if your mother is not Jewish, then you simply can convert, because it means you want to set this philosophy of life, and that's how you become part of the Jewish people. Why Jewish? can't you just be ideologically Jewish? Why do you have to convert? Uh, conversion, you, you can be, but conversion is a formalized process that needs to make a physical change, a physical change, in order to indicate to the group into which you are converting that you're part of that new group. In other words, at Hasty Night, the Jews who were, whatever they were before that, all went to this ideological, formal conversion. Because it's not enough for you to simply say, I am believe the philosophy of Judaism, to go through a formal procedure of education, of B'ni Milah, because that becomes the mark of what Abraham did, as well as Tibilah, Mikveh, which means renewal, and you bring a korban, to show that you are sacrificing your life to God, so to speak. So you need a formal procedure or process to structure your ideological change. Okay? Let me just go on because I really have to go quickly. Okay, so that's the one. Now, but it's not enough to only have a people. What you would want, essentially, is a land. You need a people, but you also need a land. Why do I need a land? Good, good analogy. You need a home base from which can emerge your ideas about life. Your new philosophical potential. I need a land. So God says, Jewish people exist genealogically. Abraham. Whoever comes from Abraham's seed is genealogically Jewish. But also people that he converts or that he formally introduces into this philosophy of Judaism. People that want to, want to follow and want to be part of this movement. They're here. And he also promised Abraham a land. Right? Because you need that formal base. But it's not going to only have a land. The land will serve as a focal point. The land will serve a place from which everything could emanate. It's great. But also, I need representatives going in all directions. It goes out in all directions. So the people live in this land, right over here, called the extent of Israel. Here it is. And the people will actually take these teachings out into different directions. That's what happens in exile. Of course, some Jewish thinkers Exile was the wonderful blessing of the Jewish people because they were able to teach people all over. To the far flung areas of the world, Jews had gone and taught. It's part of the plan. It's part of, yeah, one may view that as part of the plan, exactly. So now, back to where we started from. You have the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua tells you that you have to conquer a land. But how you conquer the land is of critical significance. So therefore, 
The book of Joshua teaches me about the value of conquering the land. Right? It's about conquering the land of Israel. But how do you, how do you conquer the land? So Joshua, we discussed this. So Joshua tells us you conquer the land by, number one, sending out three letters. Or one letter with three proposals. One is, you open up with peace. Diplomacy. You open up with peace. And then you say to that person, we are here with peaceful intentions. We don't want to conquer or destroy your city. But A, you have to become civilized human beings, which means seven Noahide commandments, which we discussed. Every Jew should know what the seven Noahide commandments are all Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't be cruel to animals, don't curse God, don't be about the idols, and justice. Right? Seven Noahide commandments. You accept those, then you are not converted to my ideology, but I can live with you as a civilized human being. You may leave if you choose. You want to, to leave this country, you could leave. If you don't leave, and you don't become civilized, then it's all out war. And we take no prisoners. But any of the three still taking your land. Yes. Why so send that letter to your house with the three options and say, I want your house on Ross Court, whatever court you live on. Harvard. Harvard, I'm sorry. It's better than Ross Court. They don't like, like that letter. What? Good. The answer is good. The answer is I'm going to take your house. Take it with a check. But but on the other hand, if I become a civilized human being, we assert. But I'll let you stay in the backyard. We assert. No, no, no. Excuse me. We assert that We assert that correct. No. We assert that civilized humanity is the basic presumption of what we're all about. God has said you should be a civilized human being. Which means, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't be cruel to animals, don't curse God, don't serve idols, and be a just, decent person. And all of that implies. So once I accept that, your object can be charity. Give me whatever I need. You have to support me, care about me, love me, visit me when I'm sick. You have to do all that. You don't want my support. You want you to I didn't say what I want. I didn't say what I, I, didn't say what, I, didn't say what I want. You cannot have my house. You, to the contrary, you must be very kind and good to me if I accept to be a civilized human being. But you don't understand. But we're taking over, as you said, we're taking over tonight. You cannot take over my house if I decide I, have to, I can live there. When I say your house, I mean your land. You cannot take over my land if I am a civilized human being. So if they I stay as a gift to Shah. We would have never taken Canaan. We, we, we would they would have been Israel. assimilated. Absolutely not. Through. Correct. Right. No, you, no, you, you, you can have formal sovereignty, perhaps. Right. You may have formal sovereignty. I'm the government, but and I, but as long as you are a civilized human being, it's your right to live in this land, and I have to give to you. Sorry. You may have sovereignty, perhaps. But once you're a civilized human being, I have no rights to you. Civilized by whose definition? God's definition? God's definition. That's correct. Now, if your God says that it's right to eat children, or your God says it's right to slaughter children, or your God says it's right to kill human beings, whatever God says, I'm going to assert might makes right. Because my right is God's right. You may not accept it. But in order for the world to work, there has to be a bottom line. So God says, I'm the bottom line. But people say, this is the bottom line. And otherwise, you're Sodom Amorah. And if you assert that cruelty is the norm, we're not going to let you live that way. So that's right. That's correct. Nazism is going to argue that in our country, we do whatever we want. And morality is relative. Judaism comes out four, squ- four square against relativity of morality. Ger- Germans will say, same way you kill cockroaches, we kill Jews. What's the difference? Who said you can kill cockroaches? We're killing Jews. The answer is that we're going to assert a moral absolute principle that civilized people will recognize. 
We're civilized, we play Bach, Beethoven, and Handel's Messiah, and yet we're civilized, and yet we don't teach immorality. We think we're moral, because we kill Jews. So at a certain point, there's no more discussion, and it's my makes right. Yeshayahu has an interesting pasuk which says, Omrim lara tov la tov ra. There are those civilizations which reverse the order of morality. They say that what is normally viewed as good, they say it's evil. Letting a human being live is evil, as Sodom Amorah said. Giving charity is evil, Sodom Amorah said. On the other hand, being cruel is a good, which everyone else thinks is an evil. They reverse right and wrong. It's called, let's call it Hamas. Once the world becomes a Hamas-driven world, then that's evil and has to be destroyed. From our point of view, that's what God says. You may not accept it, but then it comes down to the bottom line. It's, it's my rules and no rules. More than they needed just land, because they, they only needed land to make a nation. They could have gone somewhere else in the, in the desert and opened a new country and new city for them. There wasn't the population, but no, land wasn't scared. We're not saying there was intrinsically that land. We, we may get to, when we talk about the source, we may get to the reason that, we, that this land was chosen. There is a significant reason why this was the given land. That can be explained on ra- ra- uh, rational grounds. We, we're not, we don't see Tanakh why there's anything intrinsically holy about this land. It becomes holy because God chooses it. Why does God choose it? It was the vortex of civilization is the answer. It was no, it's the contrary. It was the vortex of civilization. The crossroads. It was the crossroads of three continents uh, between Asia Minor and Assyria Babylonian Egypt. It became the crossroads, and therefore that's part of the way that you impacted upon other other nations. So that's that might have been divine, the divine selection. Let's go on. So the bottom line over here is that this Nevi'im book which is God's word to the Jewish people, tells us how to take those ideas, ideas, and values and implement them into a real-world context. Okay, that's, not, so that's 19 books of the Bible. And we went through a lot of these books of the Bible and gave you some idea, examples of the ideas, ideas, and values that it contained. As, for example, last week we spoke about the issue of God utilizing a horribly evil king you know, to bring about a victory in the Hundred Year War against Syria. Strange, striking, why would God do, utilize an evil king, you know, Amben Yash? Why did he do that? We're not told why. But that was the hand that God was dealt, and therefore God simply said, I'm going to use this person, and I have to. Otherwise, what was the alternative? What was going to happen to the Jewish, the Jewish people? They would have been annihilated, demoralized, wiped out. And the analogy between the Holocaust is an extraordinary one. Again, it's Rabbi Aaron Salvatore's point, not mine, where the Holocaust brought back a mass demoralization, brought about a mass demoralization of the Jewish people, and there was a need to resurrect them spiritually, emotionally, and the way that it was done was to bring about the land of Israel through Ben Gurion, a heretic, in quotes. A heretic, in quotes. Right? Within nothing Jewish. But okay, that's what happens. So Arzorich wants to say that the analogy between the Holocaust and the Gorion and that hundred year war in the ninth century before the common era and you know is a great analogy. Short, short version of the Yerubah war. Oh no, 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 no. Minute. No minutes, no. You missed it, you pay the price. <laughs> and he gets upset if we review anything. <laughs> no, but you got to review it in 30 seconds. I've been reviewing that twice two minutes already. Oh no, you're great. 
I'm trying hard. Exactly, right, right. We mushroom that way. We, we grow. Good. I'll sneak it in when he's not looking. Okay, so let's, let's go on. So that's, the, for example, the book of Yeshua. What does Shoftim tell me? David Henry. Shoftim tells me your philosophy of life. And what happens to society when I want you to look at these books of the Bible I know, I know, that's the old time. Don't continue yet. Yeah, you're sure, sure, team. The book of Judges tells me, and you should be aware again to have some understanding. Look at these books of the Bible and give me one line about my students in school. I've done this for 20 years, actually, and everyone that graduates, many of my classes, knows all that you're doing right now. Right? I, tell, I say to weddings, I say all over the place. I had a wedding last night, I forgot to say the Why? Because that's a fundamental idea. Sorry? Absolutely correct. Everybody knows about it. Why? Because that's the straw that mixes the Jewish drink. Right? So now, you look at the book of Shoftim. You have to know one point about Shoftim. So what do you know about it? David Henry's relative morality. Every man does his own thing. And Melech Bistrei, that's how the book concludes. There is no king in Israel, every man does whatever he wants to. That's relative morality. What does it lead to? One of the most famous narratives in the entire Bible is called Pilegish Bagiv'ah. What is Pilegish Bagiv'ah about? Good. They find the girl and they rape her. Right, good. It's about man's bestial instincts coming out to an unprotected woman. Unprotected woman. What does that mean, unprotected woman? She was a Pelagish, a concubine. No one was concerned about her. And the her half-husband says to, his, to her, let's not go stay with the pagans, because we go to pagans, this is something terrible. Let's go to the Jewish people, our own kinsmen. And what do they do? They sodomize her. If you read that section of the 19th chapter of Shofetim, and you read it in comparison to Zum Amorah chapter of Bereshit, the literary parallels are all there. All literary parallels. Because the Jews were acting like pagans, they were acting like sodomites. So they're taking a gangway for the whole night. He gave Unnatural sex. Perverted sex is the way the term is used. And it's even worse than that. The, in both contexts is the people gather around the house and say, bring out that man in the, in the question of Sodom or woman, Now, of course, as you all know, the Bible uses three words for sex. No. Sorry? I knew how. I hope you didn't. <laughs> okay, good. Let's use the Hebrew because we're all Yeshiva graduates. First word is, first word, what's the most profound form of sexual involvement? The most profound, intimate relation that you can have is when you experience something. The word of that does not mean to know. It's a Greek concept. It means biblically to experience. You experience God. You experience a woman. You experience somebody very profoundly. That's Ladat. On the other hand, what does Shechem ben Hamor do to Dinah? He sleeps carnally with her as an animal does. Unnatural, perverted sex. On the other hand, is we have Bo Eleha. Bo means he comes unto her. Somebody to reaches tension, to have a child, no emotion, no feelings. The way Yehuda sleeps with his unnamed wife. Yehuda sleeps with an unnamed wife. Why is she unnamed? He doesn't really care about her. 
Manin. No, no, no. This is this, this is He's only wife gives birth to Er Onan Ashela, and then Tamar fits into that. We know who his wife is. Shemot Lamechet Lamet Bereshit Yamin Hamatet. So now, three terms of sex, right? Now, what happens if I take the holiest and most profound term, Ladat, and I pervert it as Sodom and these Pilatus Yamin does? You've taken the holiest concept and you've perverted it, turned it inside out. That's why it's Dom Amurah, they use the word, the holiest word for, for intimate relationships, Vinidayahu, let us know or experience that person. But you say it's a very strange context, because it shouldn't be that way. They want to lie carnally with the person. Because the Surah wants to give you a hint at a greater perversion of doing what? Of taking that which is holy and turning it inside into that which is evil. That's the creation of the holy. Right. It's almost saying, if let's say, I say to you that let's engage in a horrible act and we call it a mitzvah to do. Right? Exactly my point. Shabbatai Tzavi was a false messiah of the 17th century. This is only a parenthetical remark. Don't write it down. Was a, was a uh, false messiah of the 17th century. He converted two-thirds of the Jewish world, including most of Halab. All he was a true messiah. He converts to Islam at the end when the king says either soldiers either convert or you die. So he converts to Islam. He's a smart, practical kind of a person. And what did his followers say? His followers were known as the Frankists from his group. They said that he did that. Amazing how you religiously can rationalize anything, including God wanting my firstborn child. If you know my firstborn child, you'll understand why. Why? You can rationalize anything. That's a reference to, to the book of Source. You'll see that in the next class. So, including rationalizing that, they said something called the holiness of sin. Holiness of sin. Means to take a sin and make it to holy. So, Frank is it in sexual terms. It's a mitzvah to sleep with your daughter. It's a mitzvah to take your friend's wife and commit adultery. Why? That's holiness of sin. How do you explain how to rationalize it? By saying that we have to save the holy sparks of creation which was spread out throughout the entire world and we have to go into the depths of evil in order to bring out those sparks of holiness out. Perverse. It was perverse. So that's using the word Nida'ehu. Using the holiest term for intimacy and using it in a sodomizing context. So now, we look at Shoftim. The result of David's philosophy of life, Isha Shabbat Ya'aseh, is they sodomize this woman the husband doesn't know what to do so he chops over the 12 pieces sends her out to all different parts of Israel says look what they did over here the Jews have become pagan this is Shevet Binyamin these people have become of this little Gib'ah so what happens next so the Jews say this is horrible bring us those people and we will properly judge them no, we're not giving up the people the entire tribe Binyamin says we're not giving up the people and therefore there's an entire civil war between the other tribes against this one tribe because they protected evil Allah Taliban you protect evil then you're evil and therefore I can destroy you so that book of Shoftim tells me the result of Ishei Shabbat Nav Yaseh Yoshua Shoftim now Shemuel is another book which deals with leadership because there's no leadership in the book of Judges the book of Shoftim 
Shemuel tells me how to choose a leader. Hanhaga. Leadership is the key variable in the book of Shemuel. Because there's no leadership in the book of Shoftim. We need leadership. What kinds of leadership can there be? Give me examples. Democracy. I know. Monarchy. Monarchy. Good. Dictatorship. Dictatorship. Good. Theocracy. Theoc- best. With the rabbi at the head, I hope. <laughs> okay, good. Actually, I'm a philosopher king. I want to be a benevolent dictator. I will be. Benev- That's what I need. I need absolute power, however. But I'll be good with it. Don't worry. 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 Government where the priests are at the head, the priests, or the prophets, which is sort of like a theocracy. Or um, how about one where the judges are? So through a study of the book of Shemuel, we see that there are three characteristics that a leader has to have. Number one, he has to realize that he's only Eved Hashem, he's only a servant of God. He has to be absolutely humble, humility has to be his prevailing characteristic. Number one. Number two, he must be a man of extraordinary courage and strength to lead. What is Shaul's problem? He doesn't lead. What does he do? Hamala Amalatavasorn. They had compassion. So what should we all tell him? What does Sam and the Prophet tell him? What do you mean they had compassion? You're the leader. You're the leader. How could you let them determine the policy? So because of that, Shaul loses throne. And besides, Ayyubat Hashem, being humble, to realize you're only the servant of God, and besides being a man of great courage, and strength, and charismatic leadership, you also need Hamshacha, continuity. Because every Jewish leader must know that he's only serving a temporary role. God's plan transcends history, goes throughout all of history. No one Jew is going to do this all in one lifetime, to change the world, Tikkun Olam. To do this, therefore you need so the obligation of the Jewish leader is to train the next leader. Because what happens if I don't train the next, train the next leader? It stops. You have a gap in the, in the ongoing. Which book tells me? Great leader dies, gap, evil. The book of Shoftim first. Shoftim, yes. But the book of Shoftim. Deborah is a great leader. But the Shoftim, 40 years of great harmony. She dies, what happens? The Jews revert to paganism. All these great leaders in their time period. And then what happens? They all die. There's no continuity. There's no training. And there's nobody in that to fill that gap. And what happens next? The Jews become paganized again. So therefore, continuity Ram Shachab is a necessary condition for every leader to train the next generation. David trained Shalomor. But Shalomor does not train his son, Nehavan ben, ben Shalomor. And instead, Yehavan ben Nebat becomes the co-leader. And you have civil war. Right? So the book of Shoftim tells me about relative morality and about a lack of leadership. Shemuel tells me what kind of leaders should we choose. So the priest is Shemuel and his sons. His sons are corrupt. Doesn't work. And therefore, then we try the... The judges we tried didn't work. Now we tried the monarchy. Shaul. The people led, not Shaul. That failed. Did David succeed? Made of great courage, great energy, charismatic, dynamism, but... Kids revolted. Sorry? Kids revolted. Abshalom revolted against him. Good point. That's certainly a serious flaw in his leadership. He could not manage his own household. 
interesting issue. And his passions. And his passions, correct. But Sheva, right. Okay, so that's the book of Shemuel. Milachim continues with the story of trying to find the right leadership. Shlomo Amelech seems to be the epitome of great leadership. Every man sat. There was peace, there was harmony, there was tranquility. What happened? Sorry? Okay, A, there was oppression. That's correct. To build these glorious buildings, there was oppression. Shurim Ezosesabal. He had to tax the people. He had to tax the people to build his great buildings. Would you call him humble? I don't see anything in the text that tells you that he was not, except at the end of his life. We have it to use the object. Right. So we see that he failed at the end of his life in the 11th chapter of the book of Kings 1, Melachim Aleph. We see that he served idolatry. His wife. I'm sorry? In the bed to Mikdash. Yeah. He served idolatry. Well, not exactly that, but if you look at the chapter, Kings 1, chapter 11. Solomon served idolatry? Yeah. His wife did too. So was the woman. Well, his wives weren't Jews. His wives were from every pagans. Right, right, right. We look at chapter 1, very briefly. The book of Kings 1. Kings, open up quick. Kings 1, that's the page. Kings 1, chapter 11. 740, you lose. And King Solomon loved foreign women, many, and the daughter of Pharaoh, the Moabites, Ammonites, the. 740, Edomites, Phoenicians, and Hittites. From the pagan nation that God has said to the Jews, don't come unto them, don't marry them. They should not come unto you, because they will turn your heart after their gods. Specifically with them, Shalomor Davak. He cleaved unto two love. He had many women, 700, and concubines, 300. They turned his heart. When he became older, the women turned his heart after foreign gods, and his heart was not full. Are we with for page 4? Page? 739. Now 739. His heart was not full with Hashem, as that his heart was full. Shalomu went after Ashtoreth. A start, same deity goddess of the, the source, the god of the Phoenicians, and after Milcom, the, the abomination of the Ammonites, and Shalom did evil in the eyes of God, and did not walk after God. Verse 7, Then Shalom built a altar, a high place, to Kamush, who was the Barish of Moab, in a mountain that was facing Jerusalem, and to Molech, who was the Barish of Ammon. And, so and he did this way for all of his foreign wives, incense, and altars to their gods. God was angry with Shalomor because he turned his heart from the God of Israel that appeared to him twice, etc. So there are consequences to this. So at the end, the Pasuk says over here that he did evil in the eyes of God, and he went in verse 5 after the pagan deities. So it didn't work out at the end, at the end of his life. But there was a great period of tranquility and harmony in his life, although there was taxation. He was busy. There was taxation, yes, he was very busy. Very busy. Okay, so this, these lessons, ideas, ideals, and values. Book of Kings tells me about the abuse of power. King Solomon abused his power and of course paid dearly for it. This famous, wonderful, wealthy kingdom was split in two and the Jews will never got back together again. For 200 years, the 10 northern tribes, two southern tribes, from 922 when King Solomon ends his reign before the coming year, till 722, there was endless civil war between them fratricide until the ten of the tribes are utterly destroyed by the Assyrians. Good. So now, again, looking at your... Back, 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 back. 
your books of the Bible, you have the book of Joshua, Samuel, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Now we then start with, as we mentioned, the rabbinic sermons, which covers the period of time during the Kings 2. The first, prophet, first literary prophet, classic prophet, is Amos. And we spoke about what he spoke about. Lack of, lack of justice society. Judicial corruption. Luxuriating people are starving. $100,000 weddings and beds of ivory from Syria, from Damascus. We have them described. People are starving outside. That the Navi is very much against. Contemporary ring? Anybody? Very Very contemporary. He said very contemporary. That, that Amos is complaining bitterly that people are starving who have $100,000 weddings and driving Lexuses. They right. They were driving Lexi ca- ca- chariots. So has palaces and the people are starving. Okay, that's correct. That's wrong. That's evil. So Amos speaks about these issues. Correct? All of that we have. Amos, first literary prophet. Each one of these prophets we discussed, you should have, be able to focus on one or two or three of their ideas. Your L. What number is your L? Numbers here? Look at your L. Second on page one, uh, eight. Thank you. Your L. Your L spoke about the difference between. Your L spoke about the difference between incident and event. Some massive plague hits the earth. You may think it's only an incident. Your L says that's not an incident, rather it's an event. What's the difference? An incident is a happenstance. An event is something that you've got to take seriously. God's sending you a message through the natural order. What's the difference? Well, you always know. Only a man of God is hypersensitive to spiritual barometer. And now these are spiritual barometer, and he will know what is happenstance. You stubbed your toe. And what is an event which you must take seriously and act upon it. The book of your L emphasizes and highlights that idea. Okay? Question? You had a question? I mean? No, literally. That his words are written down. His students wrote down his words. As opposed to the prior the prophets, yeah. words were not written down other than Moshe. Right. So he's the first, known as the first literary or classical prophet. Okay? Good. So that's Amos and Moshe and your L and Amos. All of these. Nidim are men of God, spiritual brahmins of the age, and they all have a message to communicate about what God wants. Those are the rabbinic sermons about what was going on in society at that time. The Book of Kings describes the social, political, military events. The rabbinic sermons, or our analogy was, if you recall, that if you want to know what happened in the 60s, read the New York Times, Time and Newsweek magazine, you know what happened politically, militarily, and socially. If you want to know how God viewed those events, talk to the rabbis and look at their rabbinic sermons. How the, the rabbis commented on those events. Example given. You must have had the question two weeks ago whether or not America should have gone to war against Saddam Hussein. Your rabbi, as we mentioned, should have addressed that issue. It's a world event. It comes from a Jewish perspective. It's a Jewish event. Around Purim as well, right, which is of course interesting. So your rabbi should have said, this is a Jewish event, and it has to be approached from a halakhic point of view, and he had to marshal the sources and come to a halakhic conclusion whether or not America should have gone to war against Saddam Hussein or not. Why is it Jewish? Because every event of world-class nature is a Jewish event. 
meaning it has to be viewed through the prism of the Jewish framework and of Tikkun Olam and Mukim and everything else like that. Every event. So if Allah said you shouldn't go to war, then you could go to war. You should not support the war. Exactly. If Allah comes to a clear conclusion about it, so with that. So then, you you, why don't you go to the rabbi's speech two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. What you doing? You did. Oh, you did. What's he not here? Oh, in Germany, you did. What did that rabbi so say? So then, what did that rabbi say? He's talking German. Are you going to go to? He's German. So, no, no. Did he speak about it? He didn't speak the word in Germany, did he? So what are you saying? I don't know. <laughs> 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 People talk in German. Did you say Achtung? Attention? Yes, that's the answer. So if Halachat says that abortion is, is not allowed, then you should only vote for a president Absolutely. who has an anti-abortion yeah. platform. If that's, all, if that's his whole platform. If he has multiple platforms, then you have to weigh. If he, if he has multiple issues, so then you, so you then, have to weigh. So yeah. then you think, so you think that abortion should be illegal. Oh no, with that type of attitude, that every everything is a Jewish event and every, everything is a halachic event. Call it a everything halachic is a halachic event and everything should be gauged by halacha. Everything in the world, every decision that's made politically, militarily. That's what rabbis would uh, absolutely. Basically, How can yeah. that be? Right. 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 The rabbis, so, in other words, if the, the rabbi should, if the rabbi, for example, that's the whole let's. Let's, let's, let's take some concrete examples. If, let's say there's a famine in India, or let's say there's a war between the Tutsis and the Tutsis, is that a Jewish event or do I have no concern about it? It's a world event where you can have a Jewish attitude. That's what I mean. And I just have a halakhic attitude. And therefore, let's assume the halakha says that we should not allow them to kill each other. Easy. You want a harder one? Okay, so abortion. I agree. So, so abortion, nobody would. Only Christian fundamentalists think that abortion should be completely and absolutely illegal throughout the entire. Halakha does not say that, though. Okay, but halakha would say that it fundamentally should not be. No, halakha is a much more nuanced. On what the reasons? Halakha is a nuanced approach to it. Depending on when you're doing the abortion, at what point. Right. Of what are the other factors yeah, involved? Halakha is much more nuanced. Medical. So, because, so therefore, because because halakha is more nuanced, it's not easy to give a, a black and white issue. We're not we're not neither completely against abortion, nor we completely in favor. We don't believe in pro-choice, nor do we believe in pro-life. So you're saying that your entire attitude towards all of the events which affect 250 million Americans should be absolutely determined by halakha. I don't say anything not like that. No, 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 by halakha, which halakha, which takes into account all variables and all factors. So the rabbi decides who you vote. No, wait, let, let's let's pick this out. That's right. The rabbi decides who you vote for. The rabbi's view. The, the rabbi. If the rabbi, if the rabbi is sufficiently aware, the rabbi may say that I'm not aware of all the factors and variables. But assuming that you know, in any event, all the factors, you're, you're politically astute, and you're philosophically understanding of all the variables. Halakha should approach it. Halakha may not, because, not because halakha is physically not, doesn't have an answer to it, we may not know all the variables. Let's say something like, um, let's say, um, stem, stem cell research. Does halakha have an opinion about should we clone human beings? Stem cells not cloning. That's the question. If we should clone or not clone. 
or stem cell research, or genetic engineering. Okay, great. Or uh, autopsy. So you never perform autopsy. I say that. No, no, no. I'm saying that whatever you, whatever your factors are or variables are will be filtered through the prism of halakha. I'm saying something totally different. You are saying something no, you, That's different than saying that your attitude should be determined exclusively by halakha. If halakha is one component, halakha no. Halakha no. But that's different. No, no. One more minute because I want to go on. All I'm saying over here is that halakha takes into account all variables. I got that. You know what I'm saying? I'll your framework for which you look at the world. And every variable you can think of is part of my halakha determination. Let's say, for example, you say, I might say that halakha does not allow you to drive on Shabbat. But the variable is that you're giving birth. So I allow you to drive on Shabbat. It's just a variable. Let's say the variable is you're a member of Hatzalah and you have to go save somebody. So I say, halakha, you do that? Yes. Right? Let's say you want to now, you save somebody and you want to come back home. It's a halakha question. Can I come back home? Yeah, you walk. No, you can, you can drive back home. Yeah. You, you drive back home, right? So all, every fact that you're going to take is, is part of my halakhic analysis. If I have the expertise and I have the ability of extrapolating all that information and getting my answers on it, right? If I have the expertise, I have all my answers, then it becomes filtered through the halakhic prism. You see that? Guidelines. More than guidelines. If, but you need all the, all the factors I put through this. Yeah, but Saddam Hussein brought, brought us into the conflict when he started bombing us. Okay, whatever it was, whatever it may be. So I think Saddam Hussein is a, is a Jew. Should we? Should the Jews have got, supported the war in World War Two? So you go to a Posek who understands World War, who understands variables, who understands what Germany is, who understands evil, does everything. Let's say, Hador, whoever it may have been 50, 60 years ago, and say, should we as Jews support this war? Right? If he knew all the variables, and was, then halakha determines that question. Halakha is naively said, I'll tell you right now, I'll say that as naive, but it's God's perspective on the world. Do I have to go to the world? If it's God's perspective on the world, then that would be what God wants. You would agree that what God wants is the right answer to all these questions, correct? Right? So we would say that halakha should be, if done well enough, the, the process is done well and halakha should be the representative of what God wants and therefore do what it wants. If halakha is, if it works, it doesn't always work. Are you following? Do we agree? No, you never will. We have an hour to drive home so then we'll think. Okay, we'll say David is next. I don't want to pursue this line of thought though. Because I want to go ahead. Well, even became the President of the United States. What's so how should he guide his decisions? Uh, what's best for America, or what's uh, best for God's eyes, or what's best, what's best in God's eyes? Exactly. What's best for Israel. No, what's best in God's eyes, which will take all those variables into account. It might be, let's say, that Halakha might determine that it's best to have separation of church and state, or not have separation of church and state. Halakha may say not to have a theocracy in Israel now today. Let's say, for example, God were to come down. And say that I don't want a theocracy in the state of Israel right now. Because you guys are going to mess it up terribly. So now, should I separate the state in Israel? I keep it that way. It's much better that way. Chavadeh should not be involved in politics. Is what he might, God might say. Now, Chavadeh may interpret the halakha differently, but something God can say, Ham, I don't, you're, you're a great man, but you shouldn't be involved in politics. You don't think about politics. Don't get involved. It's going to dirty you. It's going to sell your name. It's going to, corrupt, it's going to create corruption in your movement. Yeah, we're going to get out of it. So that's taking every variable into account. So God's perspective is the way that we should all look at the world. And whatever is evil should not be practiced. So whatever you're going to decide to do, let's say business or um, 
inviting me to your weddings, whatever it may be, should be what God would want you to do. Do we agree? That's not always so clear. I agree. No, it's certainly not clear. That's Sarah's point. It's not clear. I agree it's not clear. But assuming we had all the information and halakha worked properly and we came to the right conclusion, then that's the way we should view the world. Okay, Gina? Can I come to my own conclusion? Or I have no, to of course own? not. Yeah. I can come to my own conclusion. So why do I need to be quite Wait a second. Should you, you come to your If I have a medical issue where I go to your, come to your conclusion, I go to the specialist, the experts. Who do I go to? Your rabbi. Yeah, but most rabbis are not experts in the... We're saying in the ideal world. We're saying in the ideal world. Yes, most rabbis are not correct. I agree. But in a... You're right. You're right. Why are you so hard on it? Why are you so hard on it? Why are you so hard on it? I don't agree with I don't agree with I don't agree with the statement that said it does not exist. That's not correct. It does not exist perfectly. But it, yeah. it exists it's not to, generally. I don't accept that formulation it's either. It exists to some degree in every particular item. Let's say, if we talk about Issa Hussein, the epitome of evil. So that's what Halakha says about it. And therefore, do we have an obligation of rooting out evil? The answer is yes. So that's a very clear Halakha conclusion. Well, it's so simple because there's plenty of rabbis that got up against the war and they just carried them off. They were by the UN the other day, they said. I don't the know. The war is the one who's promoting the war. Was there a, was there a reason, a lot of conclusion? These are rabbis that are getting up and making statements. Which rabbis? Which rabbis? Oh. We should there weren't Iraqi dressed like Those hasty generalizations, not based on fact, are not acceptable to this classroom. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, good. That could be an important variable. Good, okay, good. So that might be one variable that Allah has to weigh. Wait, wait. He is accepted. But I'm standing up and he's standing up. So, agree that it's not a perfect system. We don't have that. But if we were to have, in some cases we do. Did you have Hamlet tomorrow morning? It's just absolutely not. That's not a political issue. I'm saying certain issues can be known to one degree or another. Right? Do you see what I'm saying? So some issues politically might be very clear. Some issues may not be very clear. Yeah, clear. Okay, okay good. Okay, so I'm not... American soldiers? Yes, okay, those are all appropriate variables that have to be filtered through the halakhic framework and we come to our conclusions. Now, if you're saying that we can't necessarily come to definitive conclusions, in some cases you're right. In other cases you're not right. Did you take the question? Which... Yeah. The one where you came to the hospital. It, it was on Shabbat. I know. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean. So, so, so what you're saying is ideally, we have. Ideally. Ideally, we have Rabbi Lazarus, and basically I call him up. So every single question. No, no. No, no, no. Ideally, I have this rabbi. Yeah. Every single question. Absolutely. Is answered by him. If he I has it, think about if, no, no, no. If he has, Wait, I don't have to think about it. Robot, robot. Correct? No. You've got to ask the question, so you got to think I'm about the question. Right. I'm a layman, and the world oh, is made up of laymen. That's true. Oh, so that's right. Ideally, I have to pick up the phone. And he Depending has on what question you're asking. Basically, In the same way, would you go to a doctor for every medical question? For physics, do you go to a professor? Do you decide your physical issues? 
physics or biology, whatever they think. You go to a specialist. Correct. Yeah. So therefore, every time I have to have physics. That's correct. Every philosophical question. Every philosophical question. Right. 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 What do you want to know about? Uh, I want to know about anything that... Should, should your daughter marry Joe? Okay. Your daughter marry Joe. So now, the rabbi might say, I know what he's about marriage. Bless him, he has actually about marriage. But this, he may not know your daughter. Then we don't ask him. Let's say he knows your daughter very well. To every degree possible. He knows Joe to every degree possible. He may, he may not. He may say that there's some variables over here that you know your daughter because you're the mother in a way that the rabbi does not. My question is, when can I make a decision? That's what, 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 what question? What area? In medicine, you don't make it. What you have to stop when you should decide? Medicine, politics, personal, um, yeah, I need business. 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 Okay, good. Now, obviously, the rabbi is not going to know the business variables, but he might, but assuming he doesn't. But the philosophical essence, should I be cor- uh, corrupt in business or not? Right? That's a philosophical, ethical question. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're saying. So, so obviously, what you do in business, if you're honest, so that life is lived in most areas, you're not asking the rabbi. But it's philosophical questions that are religious or ethical. That's why. Only because he's not an expert, but there's an expert in every area. Of course not. Philosophical questions, theological questions, ethical questions. Political questions, because they actually border on ethics and philosophy. Certain political questions. Zayn Hussein does. Joel Eisenman may or may not. So does Iran. Abortion does. Abortion does. Deal with human life. So we need specifics rather than general statements. Next season Next session. Iran, Korea, many other nations are corrupt and is uh, evil. Is that what that was saying? Does that mean we don't our want rabbis? One second. Does that mean our rabbis can get up and say in Israel, let's go to war against these other countries? So can defeat them. I don't think I want to pursue this. I want to. I want to go back to my topic. We want to understand. We want to go to the rabbis. I want the rabbis know. We'll get back to this another time, okay? So here you have the 19 books of the prophets giving you ideas, ideas, and values of how to view the world. Is that all clear? Now we want to look at the books of the Ketuvim. You should have some sense as to what the Nadim are all about. Five books of Moses we didn't cover yet, God's Word. Nine books of Nadim, God's Word. Clear? Ketuvim is the opposite direction. It's how we feel about God's Word or events in life. It's the human reaction to the encounter with God. It's what the books of Ketuvim are all about. Let's look at some examples. We could, we could take note as a preliminary, yeah, preliminary, let me make the point. So this you may not just want to say this. The Bible consists of three sections. Torah, Nidim, Ketuvim, right? And therefore it's called Tanakh. You all know that. Some, some don't, but 
I want you to, I don't like using the word Bible to say non-Jewish world. So I'd like from now on to use the word Tanakh, which is our meaning the word Bible. But I didn't use it so far because we don't know what Tanakh is. Torah is spelled T-O-A-S. Nevi'im is Hebrew, Nevi'im, right? And Ketuvim is spelled in Hebrew this way. And Ketuvim is like this, let's say. So the first Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim equals Tanakh. Is that clear where we get Tanakh from? Okay, so that's the word we use from now on. Tanakh is the Hebrew word for Bible which represents Surah and Ketuvim. We should also point out that there are different levels of holiness. The five books of Moses are the epitome of holiness. Nevi'im is the next level down. And Ketuvim, the third section, is the least level of prophetic inspiration. What does that mean more specifically? More specifically, Torah is the direct word of God. Direct revelation. Similar to the analogy I use is that if light were to be shining in through this window, I assume that on some days, light shines in Brooklyn. Some days? Has, I haven't been here. Okay. So light comes out, right? Now, glass is the medium through which light shall pass. The light that passes on, is on one side is light on the other side. Let's say I were to shine a light through a prism. What happens to light? It breaks down into its nine basic colors. Red, orange, green, yellow, blue, indigo, and violet. Right? It breaks down. So now, the Word of God to Moses was, on one side you have the Word of God, Moses that pane of glass, on the other side you have the Word of God unadulterated, pure. That's Moshe, that's the Torah Moshe. Nevi'im, the Word of God is on one side of the prism, and what comes through is the Word of God as refracted through the prism, and therefore takes on a different coloring with each individual Nabi'o prophet. Each Nabi has a different personality, and therefore his personality colors the Word of God, which means that Amos was from the agricultural sphere of society, element of society, his word of God will take on a agricultural coloring. Yeshayahu was from the king's royalty, and therefore his words take on the noble, exalted terminology that only people of the king's throne room would use. So every Navi will use terms that are relevant to his personality, his station in life, like interpretation of, of Not interpretation, but it's a coloring of, I would say. Bordering on interpretation. I'm almost going to accept that, but I'm not completely comfortable with it. It's a prism which takes the, the light is still refracts the same light, but it's refracted different colors. It's Are you pouring. This on Heschel? Sorry, what? On Heschel, Abraham Joshua. What about Heschel? My wife's cousin. Watch out. Oh. Just watch out. It's fine. Uh, Heschel, <laughs> Heschel says that uh, psychologically, um, the Nevi'im, when correct, when they see the world and all the injustice from God's perspective, from God's perspective, exactly. because they're human, they can't handle it, and they they have what you read in the text is that they're they they're rantings because they're just so angry. Four words, four words, four words. I'm sorry, forward. I didn't. I don't have quotes direct from the text. I know, but get the word straight. Yeah, Heschel says that a Navi participates in the life of God, in quote, and therefore his rantings 
His energetic dialogue is what God would say had God been there. He participates in the life of God. So his anger at the death of one person is what God would say about that one person's death. So that's correct. But I was so thinking that he was saying that God would never say that in those words. Because he said... God doesn't use words. I mean, God, it doesn't... But his attributes lend itself... No, that's it. Fine. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I'm, I'm bordering on that. I'm not going to couple with that, but I'm bordering on that. Not going to couple, but bordering on it. Okay, so look. So now we understand what the Nevi'im are all about, what Ketuvim what Torah is about, Ketuvim is about, and now finally we're talking about the Ketuvim. Ketuvim is about my reaction. Tehillim is David Amir's reaction to life's events. Okay? Let's just take five more minutes of this and... Say a little bit about what Ketuvim is all about, Torah, Tehillim is all about. It's the first of your prophetic books. Tehillim is the most popular of the biblical books. Most, the most famous biblical teachings are contained in Tehillim. As for example, what is the most famous verse of the Bible? <coughs> no, the Bible. No. Sorry? No. No. Close. Tehillim 23, or better, you'll know this, David. 23rd, okay, not, not bad, but, Oh my Lord, why have you forsaken me? Who said it? Who said it? No! David said it! But he quoted it. Yes, you quoted it. It's the most famous you have. You have, you have 1.8 billion Christians in the world. Every Christian cuts his teeth on that famous statement that Yeshu said. Yeshu said. That famous statement that he quoted and said, Oh my Lord, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama azatani. Right? He screamed out these words in agony. He was quoting David. But because 1.8 billion Christians know that verse, becomes, in, their, in our minds, the most famous quote of the Bible. But really, of course, Tanakh and Tehillim. Right? So, Tehillim is a book that all Christians read, and in most cases, Christians know the book better than we know the book, the whole book sadly. Like ours? The whole book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the same book. Same book. Tehillim is the same. Of course, the New Testament has many additions to it. The pseudographical writings, the apocryphal writings, much other letters that we don't have, but yeah, of course have the Old Testament. Even the Tehillim and Moshe with one book. Absolutely, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but they changed a lot of things in the, in the Alpha. They no, they them. The why not? Of course not. The Holy Book, how did they change it? They changed the Holy Book. The Old Testament? Their version They have additions to it. They have additions. They have questions. The Quran is different. The Quran is very different. We know that's a different book. But I'm saying, do we know that I did? No. Christians don't change the Old Testament at all. No. The Holy Book. They interpret it differently. I believe you, but I don't believe it. No, but when they translate it, they twist it. They put a little Yeshua. Every day had a little Yeshua. They saw it. They interpret it that way. They interpret it differently. Of course, they interpret it differently. So the English would be different. So the bottom part. They don't. The bottom. The commentary. Yes, that's it. Is the article different than JPS? Yes, the article is different than JPS. Right. The interpretation of the commentary, but not the text itself. Only to the extent where the early versions mistranslated a word. As, for example, 
Hine Alma Hara Bulleted Ben. Isaiah 5, Shayal Pedic 5. Behold thee, they say, virgin shall become pregnant and have a child. We say that the word Alma does not mean virgin, rather means a young maiden. That became a polemical issue. So that translation is what they changed, but that's limited. That's the one you got to watch out for. That's the one I know. But, but generally, if they don't change, they don't change it. In fact, the term, the term New Testament, is from Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah 31. God's going to give us a Berit Hadasha, a New Testament. So they say that proves that the old foresees the new. And what's our take on it? When you read a Jew for Yeshu, and they quote to you this pasuk in, in, in Miyahu, and they convert 100,000 Jews because of this pasuk in Miyahu, you shouldn't know what else. Did you take Haramadi and Flapush? You Flapush? Yeah. Haramadi? Did you do this over here? Yeah. 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 I, I, Thank you. Just <laughs> <laughs> to When did you attend class? So that, you did it every single day by class. Shayal Lamid Aleph, where he tells us to the end of the panic. Uh, one second. Anybody see the Hadashah? It's um, 32 maybe. I think we're going to talk about this. Why did you come tonight? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. I'm glad you came. Um, here it is. On chapter 31. Look it up. Hey, hello. Look it up. Let's go. Chapter <laughs> <laughs> 30. I don't know. Chapter 30. Give me out 31. Give me out 31. Chapter 30. God says, it's very important point that he's raising. Again, I only tried, by the way, to pick... 10 thank you. I only tried to pick representative verses and all the Nibiim. I tried to just get things, so I, I didn't use this one, but he's right that, again, since there are 100,000 Jews who are convinced that Yeshua has the right message, one should have picked this verse also. 100,000 Jews have bought into the Jews for Yeshua philosophy. That's 20 years of this year? Right now there are 100,000. Actually, that's the New York Times estimate. They say there's 500,000 Jews. There's 500,000 Jews for Jesus out there. Rampant on college campuses. It's a horrible phenomenon attacking the Jewish people in a way that's unprecedented in human history. What is the passage saying? I'm sorry, one second. It's unprecedented that so many Jews have gone that route. It's a, it's a painful reality that we are not combating. We're not doing anything about it. On every Why college campus... Guy? Sorry? The guy that came... What his name? Rabbi Shaguji? Rabbi Bakhul, yeah. Yeah, he's not doing much. He's doing a couple of different phenomena. He's doing, dealing with assimilated Jews, which is not really the same as these. Different phenomena. College campus, wherever, every major college campus has Jews for Jesus on it, and they're, they're selling this message. They're saying they're quoting from the Old Testament itself, and proving the message of Yeshua to the world. So they quoted from our testament. So this is one, Zechariah chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 5, and of course the most important one is Isaiah chapter 53, is the one which of course is the most powerful of this proofs of Yeshua. What was the Isaiah one? Get to a second. Chapter 31, verse 30. Hineya mean bahim. Read, please. 
Me? What, what festival? 30! 30 in Lamanala? Wait, 31. But everyone shall. Uh, Hebrew! He, 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 <laughs> 30. 30. Right. The next verse is the key one. Yamim Ba'im Adonai means what? A new testament, a new covenant. So they say, you see, Yirmiyahu spoke about a new testament. And then, since most Jews they speak to don't know anything more than that one verse, if they know that one verse, they say, you're right. New Testament. Therefore, Yeshua is right. But of course, if we read three lines below, not like the Old Testament, Hashem says that I covenanted with their forefathers on the day they took them out of Egypt, that they violated that. He's got the New Covenant, 32, that I shall covenant with the Jewish people after those days. I shall take the Torah and place it within them. It's the same as the Old. What's the difference? The Old was external to them and therefore was violated by them and now it's going to be internalized and therefore unviolatable. Is that pretty clear? It shall Which is what the rabbis did with all the changes. Forget, ra- Sorry. forget rabbis. Look at this one. Talking about. I shall place the Torah bekirbam the alibam bechtovena I shall write it on their hearts that I shall be their God they shall be my people. Which is the same as Shemot 18 Shemot 19 That's what's the key formula. Are you following what I'm saying? Yeah, so therefore, I'm really saying that. So, so what? Sorry? The rabbis internalized Judaism by taking it out of the Beth Hamikdash and into the Torah. Completely irrelevant to what I'm saying right now. No, uh, no. Fine, but it's not irrelevant. My only point over here is that this verse of Rishadashah is what the Christians do, in fact, use in order to convert, convince Jews of the message of Jews for Yeshua. This is from Jeremiah 31, right? But it's really not a new testament; it's the old internalized. Okay, so that's a critically important point. There, is, there are multiple verses throughout the books of the Nevi'im that we should point out, which we don't have the time to do. But I'm glad you raised that issue. Isaiah 53 is also the most quoted polemical text in the history of Judaism, where the Messiah is one who's going to be afflicted and scorned and spat upon and cursed. So they say, you see, it really happened. Now, I tell my kids in high school that we studied this chapter, and it, in fact, it did happen. So I said to them, I said, if you cannot interpret this differently or better, another way, you've got to convert to Christianity. I know more of that. I have more converts to Christianity every year. It's true. These kids can't interpret. I said, well, you have to convert. If this is what the text says, and you can't interpret it differently, you've got to convert. Then you have to be true to your word. So what's the answer? Isaiah 53, it's very simple. Sorry? No. I just heard that. Where? One interpretation is that she says that 53 is really to the Nesel, not about Yeshua. But no. The answer is very simple. When was Isaiah 53 written? Around 740 before the Common Era. When did Yeshua live? The Common Era. Now, Yeshua understands that if I want to become Messiah, what do I have to do? Play by the rules of the game. Where are the rules? Isaiah 53. He read the script. Because he read the scriptures, acted out, and did what the script tells him to do. So it's not a foretelling which came true. He only simply read it and did it. He's very shrewd. He's Jewish. What do you think? I don't 
answer that. I know. He doesn't have the right. I don't think so. I think That's the answer. Doesn't David. <laughs> Please. It happened by accident. Some people wanted power. They broke up the, the religion. Please. One point eight billion people believe that message. Whatever it may have been, it's that's whoever. That what you're saying is correct. Obviously, that he may or may not have intended this. If you read the Passover plot, which is an interesting book that one should read, in the '60s was a very famous book by Schoenfeld, who's a New Testament scholar. Yeah. And he does see the Passover plot as being really the worked out program of Yeshu. Contemporary scholarship on the New Testament will say... The ones that we use the children... Sorry, is that what you're talking no, about? No, 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 that's blood libel. No, 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 that's no, no, no. Okay, so don't, no. Don't say it's the Passover Plot talks about this whole... If you read the book, it's, it's well documented, it's a scholarly academic work, it's a good book on the plot of Yeshu program of how he's going to reveal himself as a messiah. Contemporary scholarship on the New Testament will say that actually he didn't attempt this and really it was Paul who did all this. Either which way, it still is simply the fact that they will say that see how Yeshua fulfilled this, this prophecy is not what really happened. He simply as a good Jew knew this, or Paul knew this, whoever created the Gospels, which we don't really know, but whoever created the Gospels, simply created Yeshua in the eyes of Yeshayah, which is smart to do, because that's what the script is all about. So it's not a foretelling, he just played by the rules of the game. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> David, I know this is... I'm sorry. Yeah, hold it. That's it. Yeah. We have faith in what Yeshayahu tells us. So we, so we accept that whenever the Mashiach does come, Correct. that prophecy is going to come to Correct. So who's to say that Yeshayahu, regardless of whether you knew it or not? Correct. So the answer is he didn't change the world. Okay, that's, that's, that's the answer. Well, okay, good. Not to pursue this. Well, Not to pursue this. Back to well, you, one more minute. I got to leave at 10.30. <laughs> I apologize, but I got to leave and I want to go to the next class. He did change the world. Yes, he did. Not the right way, though. The most famous of the biblical books is Salim. The teachings are well known throughout the world. What is Salim really all about? The book is authored, most of it by King David, who reigned, ruled from the year 1000 to 960, seven years in Hebron 40 and, and um, 33 years in Jerusalem. He's the principal author. King David was a poetically sensitive soul who recorded in poetic terms the events of life that, that impacted deeply upon his own soul. Question, what are the events of life that you would want to record for eternity. Birth of a child. Death of a child. Rebellion against your throne. Rebellion against you go through the Exactly, time. correct. The grandeur of of God's world. Illness. Happiness. Happiness. Joy. Experiencing the greatness of nature. Transgression, sin, and guilt. And thankfulness. And thankfulness. All of those of life's experiences, good, will is are recorded in the book of Tehillim. And it's so reflective of what we're all about that in fact we can read this book and find comfort, find solace, find some kind of spiritual satisfaction 
by experiencing life's greatnesses or life's most difficult moments and you read Tehillim and it reflects your feelings and because it reflects your feelings you're able to handle that crisis so Tehillim is extraordinarily expressive of what the human being is really all about or should be all about or should be all about on that note we're going to stop this class you have three minutes break and we'll go to the source and we'll continue with this next week thank you Oh, sorry.